0: Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023 and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links and even video and music if need be. That's TonyFletcher.Substack.com and now on with the show. Hey, you. hey and welcome to One Step Beyond, a show about stepping outside your comfort zone and positively engaging with the world outside our door. This is episode 14, but if you're a first-time listener, well, I'm your host, Tony Fletcher, a dual British and American citizen living in the town of Kingston, declared the capital of New York State in the summer of 1777 during the American Revolutionary War, by the revolutionaries of course, and promptly burned down by the British that same October, as I am reminded this time of year, every year. Somewhat on that note, this is my last show before the US elections. I've voted, I'm hoping any fellow American citizens listening to One Step Beyond have also voted, and I'm doing a lot more than merely hoping that by the time you next hear from me, I can be a little more proud to own at least one of my two passports. That the great American democratic experiment will have held, or be holding, firm. It seems apposite, then, that the music you're listening to in the background is the theme song from a movie entitled The Road to Independence. But, as you might guess from its flavour, I'm not referencing the 2011 documentary about Thomas Jefferson. Rather, this is the theme song from a 2019 documentary about another country that fought for its independence from the British Empire, India. The movie was made by self described British expeditioner Ollie Hunter Smart, who in 2017, on the 70th anniversary of that independence, walked solo the entire length of the country, both as a physical test and to gather his story. You'll hear Ollie and I talk about this amazing journey, with all its peaks and valleys, both literal and metaphorical, in just a few minutes. But first, my usual joining of various narrative dots, connecting my personal life to this episode's featured story. Back at the start of October, I ran the Cat's Tail Trail Marathon, the only one of three big trail races in the Catskill Mountains to take place this pandemic year. I had a great, near-perfect day out, running up and down four mountains, and yes, there was 26 miles of them, and in many ways, that's about all I need say on it. There were no pitfalls, no physical falls, no extreme discomforts, and though I broke no records, I finished halfway up the pack. Not bad, considering I was the second oldest person out there. And by the way, how did that ageing process happen so quickly? But I am not, I promise, mentioning this for brownie points. There are people tackle projects so much tougher than this all the time, as Ollie will shortly confirm. Now, the reason I mention it is because it struck me in the weeks since that the relative mundanity with which I can describe my endeavour is because in large part it was my fourth year in a row doing The Cat's tail, and that living close by, I'd additionally been able to train on the course frequently over the summer and autumn. When you know the twists and turns coming your way, the trail merely being a metaphor for life in general here, and if you're aware of times you took things too aggressively in the past, or conversely, where you can afford to go at something a little harder next time out, you're bound to eventually lock things in, to nail your goal, to find that you can take on something difficult and make it doable. However, it's when you step into the unknown in life that you really test your mettle, which is largely the point of this show. And so, while I was researching, planning, and then editing my interview with Ollie, I was also reading the book North, by Scott Jurek with Jenny Jurek. North came out in 2018 and was in fact a bestseller, and I was reminded that I'd yet to read it after Scott supplied a cover blurb for the book Still Running, whose author, as we say Goddard, I interviewed on the last show. To summarise North briefly, and yes, it absolutely connects to today's show. In 2015, Scott, America's top ultramarathoner for the first decade of the new millennium plus, but increasingly slowing down as he neared 40, accepted his wife Jenny's challenge to effectively pull up or shut up, and set out to break the fastest known time on the Appalachian Trail, which runs approximately 2,200 whole miles from Georgia all the way up to Maine, following the ridge of what may be the oldest mountain range in the world. Now, many people hike the entire AT every year, but most take five to seven months to do so. Scott, though, had to cover the distance in under 47 days. And if you do the math, that tells you he was averaging almost 50 miles a day, every single day. This punishing schedule exacted a predictably brutal toll on his physical and mental health, far beyond anything he'd endured, even on his toughest of ultramarathons and he details these hardships in exquisitely intimate fashion in North, a compellingly written account that alternates between his perspective and that of Jenny, who was crewing him, as they call it, from a van she drove to various meet points along the way. Now Scott and Jenny knew it would be tough, but the couple's initial concept had nonetheless aspired to the adventure as quality time together, running in tandem in the mornings, crossing state borders in unison, and generally working on their marriage as they tried to move beyond an unfortunate miscarriage. But that's not what actually happened. As Scott readily admits, and emotionally so at the end of the book, it took a village. He would never have been able to achieve his goal, probably would have given up entirely, without the help of fellow top ultra marathon runners who flew in on their own dime to help him through difficult sections, to plot his daily mileage, and provide military precision coaching and directives. But Scott was also invigorated and inspired, and at times distracted, by people he didn't know. Everyday local trail runners who were following his attempt online and came to join him, guide him through their local areas, and offer other forms of encouragement and motivation. There's a lovely moment when Scott finds a chocolate cake left out for him on a mountaintop and downs the whole thing. Trusting that it's Baker knows that Scott is vegan, but at that point, too famished to care. And it's hopefully not a spoiler alert to let you know the couple had a baby within a year of Scott finishing the course. Which does bring us to this show's guest, Ollie Hunter Smart. He walked the opposite direction from Durek, south, down the entire length of India, From the dizzy heights of the Himalaya mountains all the way to sea level at the southern tip of the country, a distance fully one-third longer than the Appalachian Trail with considerably more varied terrain and geography. Travelling solo, completely unsupported with the exception of some hired guides in the mountains, Ollie carried a backpack laden with professional camera and audio gear and eventually distilled what must have been thousands of hours of footage which could easily have made from a Michael Palin-style six-part BBC series, into a single 60-minute film. Like Scott and Jenny Jurek's book North, Ollie's film The Road to Independence allows us to share his adventure in a tangible manner. And, like the Dureks, he too found himself relying on the kindness and hospitality of others, as you'll hear in a minute. But something else that both Scott and Ollie's stories have in common is that each of them was on virgin territory. One reason Scott suffered so much on the AT was that he didn't know the course, had barely stepped foot on it before, and had massively underestimated its terrain and the challenges that provoked. Similarly, Ollie had never been to India prior to deciding to walk its entire length, willingly stepping into the unknown to see what both he in a personal sense and India in a physical sense was made of. Reading North, talking to Ollie about his walk south, and then thinking about the comparative ease with which I was able to tackle my trail marathon at the start of the month, reinforced that for my own part, I need to not just feature guests who have stepped outside their comfort zones, but step outside my own again, and soon. Ollie gave up a Friday evening in London, although I'm not sure what else is going on in the capital in these pandemic times, to talk with me by Zoom. We did discuss some of his other amazing expeditions, but I've glossed over these with some interjected narrative so that we can focus here on his walk through India. You'll hear a few audio extracts from the movie along the way, and I'm happy to say that Ollie's offered a 50% discount to One Step Beyond listeners so that you can watch The Road to Independence on Vimeo for the price of your usual Netflix or Amazon movie. And so, with all of that said, it's time now to sit back, or better yet, Head out on a walk of your own as we go
1: one step beyond.
0: At the beginning of this film that you made, uh, The Road to Independent, you call yourself a British expeditioner. So I'd like to ask what qualifies somebody as an expeditioner? I mean, given that presumably you don't go to school for it or college for it, the way you might accountancy or architecture or something similar
1: you know, a lot of people call themselves explorers and adventurers and that sort of thing. And I I don't feel like I can claim that. What I enjoy doing is going on a journey, um, an expedition that I've set up myself. There's, there's not necessarily a particular, you know, world record or um, uh, even, even a particular purpose, uh, although having a purpose for a journey is great. But I just didn't feel like I could claim myself as, as any of those things. I'm not trained in this um it's just a passion and so ultimately i, I figured expedition was, was sort of a word that summed up uh, what i consider myself it's not about the uh the end achievement um or the you know the record you're getting or, or whatever um it is about very much about the journey and the journey can change as you go along along your route uh, and that's the thing i think is is fascinating about journeys and expeditions is is the ability to um to, to kind of go with the flow. You don't know what's going to happen. The unexpected things come up. Um, but also you can sort of follow a different path uh, if your mindset changes.
0: Ollie says he wasn't trained in this, but the adventurous spirit was instilled in him early on.
1: My, my dad used to take my sister and I on what he called mystery tours. We would head off into the forest or um, on a long walk or bike ride it, in, in an area we didn't know or didn't really remember. We sort of knew roughly where we were. Um, and I'm sure he knew exactly where we were, but he always said, oh, we're just going off on a mystery tour. And, and that's really stuck with me um, throughout the rest of my life. And, and kind of one of the reasons I continue doing expeditions uh, is, is an element of that unknown.
0: Ollie joined Cub Scouts, where he learned camping and survival skills, and later went for the Duke of Edinburgh Award which requires participants to engage in community service, skill building, physical recreation, and an adventurous journey. And when he was 18, Ollie took a gap year, as it's called, before starting his geography degree at college, spending six months in Belize, a small country most people struggle to locate on a map of Central America. There, he worked on a conservation project, lived in a village with a local family, and engaged in an 18-day jungle trek.
1: It was an organised trip, um, so there was that s- kind of support network around me. But uh, yeah, I absolutely loved it, and and I think uh, some of the experiences I had there, and that was really where I fell in love with the the jungle. But some of the experiences I had there led me to to believe that I could do bigger and better things in an adventurous way.
0: Did you decide early on? You know, I'm more interested in seeing the world than. Uh, than than having some kind of uh, having I don't know being the MD of a company in the UK that kind of thing.
1: I think I always saw travel as a, an opportunity to escape from uh, maybe the, the the pressures of uh, Western society. Um, you know, there's there's often a very clear path that you know ultimately many of my friends have taken. You uh, you finish school. You may go traveling. You then go to university. You get your degree. You go into a job and you work your way up. Uh, at some point, you get married. You have kids. You buy your first home. You know, and and you, that that your life is kind of mapped out. And I thought, wait a minute, there, there must be something else to this. And so I saw travel as that opportunity to kind of escape that that journey, that routine.
0: We're going to talk about a couple of big adventures that you've taken. But it's very important, I think, to state you do these self-funded. Correct. This is not about sponsorship. It's not about big teams. It's not about having somebody donate money to finance this. This is your. How, how do you self-fund it? Is it as simple as going to work for six months and then taking six months off?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I do. You are correct. I do self-finance these trips. Um, there is an element of sponsorship. I quite often reach out to some uh, some of the kit brands that I love. But yeah, in terms of gaining sort of financial support, uh, no, I've never had any of that. And it's, it's incredibly difficult, I think, to, to try and secure that. I know the easiest and quickest way for me to afford an adventure, and, and don't get me wrong, traveling can be incredibly cheap, um, particularly if you're traveling through places like India. But the quickest and easiest way f- to, to earn enough money uh, or to build up enough money for that trip is to, is to work for it because I know exactly how much I'm gonna be earning each week or month, and I can squirrel away a set amount so that you know, in four, five, six months, I know exactly how much I'm gonna have, and I may have been able to put away a bit more, uh, which then allows me to go and do the, the trip that I want.
0: Which sounds absolutely great, but there, I'm sure I can imagine some people listening to this who say, well, if I gave up my job, it wouldn't be there. When I come back, what words of encouragement would you have to somebody about that? And what kind of job have you had that's enabled you to go off for six months or a year at a time and come back and still get work?
1: I mean, I work in digital advertising, uh, which is very much a, uh, you know, there's a lot of freelancers in the industry. And so that has allowed me the flexibility to take time off and uh, the, uh, the confidence that I'll find something else when I come back. There's always that sense of fear about uncertainty. And And that's why a lot of us take trips like this, but you know if you you've you've had the confidence to get that job, secure that job once, and uh, there are always other opportunities out there. You just need to know kind of where to where to look and have the confidence that you're going to be able to secure that job in the future.
0: And it occurs to me that the travel itself, because it involves so much um self sufficiency presumably builds confidence
1: yeah absolutely uh, but also you know employers are more frequently looking at general life experiences they're looking for a broad range of skills and viewpoints and so on and if you can say, do you know what I spent you know three months with a a tribe in in the Amazon um and I had an incredible life experience, and I was able to grow myself, but equally, I can offer views that could be leveraged in a business situation, you know, negotiation or, uh, you know, anything like that. There are always ways you can flip a, a travel experience and bring it into a work context.
0: Ollie's list of, let's call them adventurous accomplishments, includes a 500-kilometer rowing race, a few road marathons, cycling from John Groats to Land's End, i.e. the entire length and breadth of mainland Britain, and a 24-hour cycle race from London to Paris. Impressive as these are, they're all kind of organised, familiar events. However, his Amazon River run was and remains something utterly unique. In 2015, he and a companion took a 6500 kilometer journey, that's over 4,000 miles, spending four and a half months tracing the Amazon River from its mountainous source in Peru all the way to its mouth in Brazil's Atlantic Ocean. They walked the first 400 miles and they kayaked the rest. And as you can imagine, it was quite a risk-laden adventure. Still, the journey set Ollie up perfectly for his next expedition, which he decided to take solo this time and to document himself doing so. Tell us about it. Tell us about India, what you decided to do, why you decided to do it, and and if you can, very, very quickly and whether you had the filmmaking experience going into this or just decided to hell with it, I'm going to make a movie.
1: Yeah, 2017, I decided I was going to walk the length of India. Uh, It's a um, four and a half thousand kilometre journey. I seem to have this thing about four and a half. (laughs) I'd always wanted to go to India. It was a country that had fascinated me for a while. The vibrancy, the colour, the people, that culture. Um, was something that captivated me and I thought uh, you know I'd love to just go and see the place and actually I was traveling to work uh, after having got back from the Amazon I was working in the same job I was working in previously and um, I read an article about Gandhi's salt march uh, which was a, a 230 mile journey that he undertook back in 1931 and it was a protest against the British salt tax that had been imposed on the production of salt in India. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard about um, kind of a protest for for that kind of duration, but a a moving protest. Um, But it was also peaceful. And I thought, oh, that's a a really interesting concept. Wouldn't it be great to go and retrace Gandhi's footsteps along that route? At the same time, I, I was doing a bit more reading around the topic of India's independence. Uh, based on the impact the Salt March had had. And the more reading I did, the more I realized the importance of the Salt March on on independence, Uh, but also all these other places where significant things had happened. Places like Shimla, which is where the British were ruling uh, India, particularly during the summertime. And that's ultimately where partition was decided. India was, uh, in 1947, partitioned into India and Pakistan based on religion, um, places, other places that Gandhi had had an impact uh, down in Pune where he spent a lot of his time, he was imprisoned there by the British. And so I just placed all these dots on a map and slowly but surely the, the route pretty much presented itself.
0: At the same time, Ollie realised that if he moved quick enough, he also had the coincidence of a newsworthy narrative.
1: 2017 was the 70th anniversary of Indian independence and I thought well what better year to go and do that journey learn about the history uh, and speak to people along the route uh, because I realized that uh, independence happened 70 years ago they would probably uh, the people that experienced it would be 85 90 they're not going to be around for another significant anniversary so now's the time to really go and find out what happened from their perspective
0: why make a movie and how make a movie on a one man trip there is no cameraman correct
1: that is correct yeah you uh, are the I cameraman mean, a couple of times i handed the camera over to other people uh to get different shots of with me in it but yeah fundamentally i was you know the talent and the cameraman and the production team and uh the editor when i got back and yeah Uh, I I kind of did it all.
0: In 2016, Ollie went to the Adventure Film Festival in London, where, conveniently, he ended up on a one-on-one, two-and-a-half-hour session with noted motorcyclist-slash-documentarian Austin Vince, who would appear to be something of a renaissance man, given that he also wrote and recorded the theme song we're hearing along the way.
1: He sent me a text message a couple of days later and just said, I fully understand your trip and your passion for this topic. I think you do need to make a movie out of it. I will help you, I will offer to be your mentor and help you make this film. And so before I went to India, I had four sessions with him and with those four training sessions under my belt, I went off and filmed my journey through India
0: in 2016, the year before you, I fulfilled a lifelong dream and finally got to India. I just adored India in in all its chaos, and I think you have to have (laughs) a certain energy to be able to exist in that chaos. But I'm going to uh, uh, quote from what you say right towards the end of your film, and I watched the last section of it for the second time this morning, and I love this. It's my favourite lines from, from the movie. And I, it's really you almost, almost at the point of reaching your destination.
1: And you say, If you're not interested in culture or community, then don't walk through a country. And if you don't want to fall in love with humanity, then don't go to India.
0: And I thought that was just perfect. Um, what were your expectations of India and how did it live up to them?
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's such a varied country because it is so vast um, and it covers such a huge range of uh, terrains. The, the culture changes, you've got different religion impacts, you've got this caste system, which is incredibly confusing for, for outsiders, but it's essentially it's a, it's a kind of a hierarchy. You know, there, there there is so many different influences on it. It's you can't really have an expectation of what India actually is. When I flew up uh, to Leh, where near where I started, I, it, I let's just say I considered that as, as an ease into India. It, there was very few people around. It was um, uh, mountainous. Uh, it was a fair bit cooler than I was expecting, um, and the, the food was very different as well. And uh, the people looked different. And so all of those things, I was like, oh, this isn't quite what I was expecting. It was only when I came maybe part way through. The, the Himalayas, that I suddenly started experiencing the India that I'd anticipated.
0: You were up almost as high as I was on the top of Kilimanjaro, and I kind of lost my sanity on the top of Kilimanjaro. So, uh, did you feel at least like, like somewhat, somewhat ready for that, that, that shock of the altitude um, sickness or the thin air?
1: I, I mean, yes, I, I flew into Leh, uh, which is about 3,000, 3,500 meters high, and I had three or four days to acclimatize to the conditions Um, we then drove up and over that the highest mountain pass uh, that i crossed uh, into another valley and we then spent seven days walking through that valley Uh, and again that was about three and a half thousand meters so i'd i've been able to acclimatize to that altitude we then did the the high pass and back down again in a day and it was amazing seeing the impact that altitude had on my body i I felt like I was drunk. I lost control of my legs. I was slipping around on the ice. Um, I was short of breath. I wasn't uh, clear thinking. And I think that comes through in the film.
0: I feel like my face is about to fall off. <sighs>
1: oh, my God. It's almost as if you're looking at yourself from the outside and you, you're watching and you think, oh, there's something not quite right there. But when you're in the moment you don't necessarily think about that you know you feel like you're acting fine and it's only when you come down from that altitude that you do start to recover and, and become a bit more normal
0: that was an amazing summary i agreed with you every single word of the way into right up to the point where you said that you don't really realize you're acting funny i i, I went through every one of those sensations except i knew i wasn't acting normal and it's all there on my on my own little mini audio documentary of Kilimanjaro, including the fact that I actually managed to film myself reaching the summit and 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 dictate relatively well, and I had no recollection of it until I was making the documentary and came across the tape, and I was like, "Wow, and I think you do much the same in the film. You're seen just like complaining to the camera, but at least you're there documenting it."
1: yeah absolutely and that's that's one of the critical things of making a film is you have to film the highs and the lows um you know you have to be capturing all of those particularly when you're low when you least want to get the camera out or record anything you don't have the energy you you just all you want to do is you know lie down and sleep or uh, or drink water and recover but you have to get the camera out in in those moments because otherwise you know, your journey will have seemed like a, a relatively flat, emotional, uh, emotionally flat journey.
0: That's really important. And and although this is not chronological to your journey, I'm going to jump right ahead to um, uh, somewhere about two thirds of the way through. You reach the end of the Salt March. I think it's Dandy is the place on the coast. And yeah, you get very, very, very emotional. And you put the camera on and uh, you start welling up.
1: I've just finished the next leg of my journey, which was the inspiration for my whole journey through India. And it's it's actually really emotional.
0: And I think we've all been there. We've had these things in our lives that we wanted to do, and we did them, and and they make us emotional, whether or not they matter in the bigger scheme of things. And, And you draw us in with that, and then immediately you follow it. By going back, because, of course, Stanley's not the end point of your journey. I think you're barely more than halfway through. You've still got the rest of the country to walk. And you go back into walking India, and you do a collage, a compilation of all these terrible moments. Um, it seems that you go from this high straight back into a series of lows, just like everything going wrong that can go wrong. Really important that you show those highs and the lows. And I'm assuming from what you're saying, you went through every range of, of emotions that you've ever experienced on, the, on this walk.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I was up in the mountains. I was not really in contact with anyone outside other than my, the, the guide and the porters that I had. Uh, once I got further down, uh, down the Himalayas, I then had a SIM card. I could you know, reach out to my friends and family and so on. And I felt that was that was a really good way for me to kind of escape a little bit because I did find it intense. Um, And I think that's just one of the things India is. You know, it's an incredibly intense country. There's always noise going on, um, you know, different sights, sounds, smells. It is an assault on all of your senses all of the time, and, and you can't necessarily escape it. Man, Delhi is hot, it's busy, and it's full of traffic. This is absolutely mental. Often I was staying in people's homes. I would walk into a community and say, is there anywhere I can put my tent up? And they would say, no, just stay in our house, which is an incredibly generous offer. But with that, uh, there came another level of intensity. I was then you know, quizzed and questioned throughout the whole evening, depending on what time I got there. It would go through till midnight. They would then wake up again at 5 a.m. and want to continue the conversation. Uh, You know, and I'm thinking, hold on a minute. I've had five hours sleep. I've not probably not had a a shower or wash. I've not been able to back up my footage um, or think about where I'm going the next day or, you know. And it was it was just very difficult to to try and plan those things.
0: That's really interesting you mentioned that because it's actually not completely clear on the movie that that's how it happened. You talk about being welcomed into people's homes and you, you show some footage, but I was left wondering, well, what percentage of, of, of your journey was, was spent staying in strangers' homes?
1: I mean, I, I found that I could probably spend two to three days with families before I felt like I needed to stay in a hotel. Um, I spent... Between the bottom of the Himalayas and the bottom of India, I spent four nights in my tent. And yeah, I carried that tent the whole way. It was crazy.
0: People who haven't done these journeys have fears, and their fears are always the negative, you know, like somebody's going to assault me, like like people are going to try and rip me off. The experience is generally the opposite, that you walk into a community and they say, who's the white man, Um, or woman, hopefully, um do you need any help i mean that's what you that's that seems to be the more common narrative is that that's that's what you found
1: yeah absolutely i found that both uh, along the amazon and and throughout india generally you know 99.9% of people are good they know the struggles that you're going through you know they live in that environment uh, and that's that's particularly something that that struck a chord with me up in the himalayas is you know, we were going through these high, over these high mountain passes, through these tiny little villages. Um, you know, the, the rain was coming in, the wind, snow, ice, all of that. And, you know, those people live up there in those conditions. They know what it's like outside. So when you turn up in their village, they automatically welcome you in. They give you tea. They know that's going to warm you up. Um, you know, and it's it's a way of welcoming you. And, and that definitely continued throughout the rest of the country. Right. One advantage,
0: of course, with India, uh, which gets back to uh, the point of your making the movie, is a lot of people speak English. Did you ever come up into a village where nobody spoke English?
1: Yeah, there was one night I spent, uh, it was hammering it down with rain in the monsoon uh, season. I was walking through Rajasthan and it got to about five o'clock and I was just really, really bored of the rain just hitting my head knowing that everything in my bag was getting wetter and wetter and I walked through this village and I thought well maybe I'll just stop here for five or ten minutes um, in the shelter try and sort of dry off and work out where I'm actually going to spend the night and they didn't speak a word of English the the family I I sort of approached their their porch and I said is it right if I take five minutes all done through sort of sign language and they ultimately couldn't couldn't really respond so I stayed and it got to a bit later and a bit later and then they eventually turned up with some food and it got later and later and they got a bed out for me and so I spent that evening not really being able to convey the journey that I was doing but I had this incredible experience with this family that all done through sign language
0: People's perspectives of india you knowing that it's got, you know, 1.2 billion people. It's, it, 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 you know, and then they look at the size of it on the map, and they've seen pictures of the big cities. People tend to think it's it's like a, a, a sea of humanity from top to bottom, from east to west. My experience was not unlike Britain or America—that you've got these big, big, big cities, and there's lots of them, and you've also got vast tracts of country and villages and rural lifestyles.
1: Yeah, I mean. I- there are a lot of cities uh throughout the whole country that are you know five six, seven million people that you will never have heard of because they're not the main cities, but there are areas you outside of those cities you suddenly get into the rural areas, and yeah, there are these really small uh hamlets communities uh that ultimately you know they survive out in the middle of nowhere. What I found is that there is actually very little wild space. So there are obviously national parks, tiger reserves, that sort of thing. But a lot of the land has been taken up by agriculture and it's been divided and divided based on families. And, you know, the sons take a piece of land each and each time they have a son, it's divided into two. And and so you do have this patchwork of of, uh, agricultural land and it does make trying to find somewhere to stay in a tent, incredibly difficult, which is one of the reasons I ended up spending time with the families and in hotels.
0: What precautions did you take not to advertise that you were carrying uh, you, you know, a lot of high, high-end tech gear?
1: In all honesty, um, I quite often carried my camera in my hand and the tripod in my hand. Um, I didn't feel like the extra weight on my back was probably worth, worthwhile. Um, but also, if the camera's out and ready then you can capture a moment. But if it's in your bag, you'll miss that moment or you won't bother getting it out of your bag. Um, So you won't come back with the the footage you're after. I did take everything in a 1960s canvas rucksack, uh, which you'll see in the film. Uh, It it almost becomes a character, which is quite nice. I I like that about it. Uh, But that also had its own challenges uh, because uh, ultimately it wasn't up up to the job. But I think that the fact that that looked so rugged and blended in with the environment did help detract from the, from the value of some of the equipment that was in there.
0: So that's your, 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 the, what you're ca- carrying with you physically. But emotionally, you're carrying the weight of being British while making a movie about the British rule in India, and specifically by retracing Gandhi's steps on the salt march. So how did that impact on your journey?
1: That was a question I was always asking myself, before I went, Um, and certainly early on uh, in the journey, I was very hesitant about some of the questions I was asking. Um, They were obviously very difficult topics to talk about, and me being a British white male uh, walking through the country 70 years after they ultimately got rid of the British, um, I felt like that I could uh put myself in a rather difficult situation and and experience maybe a bit of hostility in reality they love the british they were incredibly welcoming everywhere i went um they would always be open to talking about the british and they would love they loved sharing their stories and their families experiences of uh, british and and indian uh, relationships and i think you know even a lot of them highlighted the fact that, yeah you know, they've got cousins in, in the UK or Canada or America or, you know, wherever said so that, that, you know, they have uh, got relatives that have traveled and have Western friends. Um, and, and ultimately that was, that was really nice to, to kind of experience. It's
0: almost, you're, I think you're suggesting, it's almost like people opened up to you more because you were British than say, had you been American coming to make a movie about British rule in India? Yeah.
1: And the other thing is actually, the reason I did this journey solo was was twofold. One was because I wanted to make a movie and I wanted to make sure that uh, I was in control of the story that I was telling. But the second is I also think that when you're traveling solo, you do appear more vulnerable and therefore people welcome you in and you get a much deeper experience with people. If you're traveling with someone else, people will look at the two of you and think, oh, there are two of them, they're fine. And therefore they won't engage. And I think that's, that's the really nice thing about my experience through India is that because I was solo, I did get invited into so many homes. I did meet so many people, uh, uh, you know, and I had some really incredible experiences because of that.
0: The Mughal Empire was breaking up. What would India have been like had the British not come?
1: to us. They ruled over us brutally. The British looted
0: and they also. So me great snippets of conversations. Who was the most interesting person you met on the journey?
1: I think Gandhi's great-grandson was probably one of the most interesting people. Um, he was able to give me an insight into uh, Gandhi's views and beliefs and philosophy that you know I'd read about but it was very difficult to kind of um, actually think about that, that kind of impact. And I think there's a really nice thing that, that he says, a quote that he says that does come up in the film, uh, is that Gandhian views and beliefs and philosophy is still very relevant in the world that we live in today. I think they're not only re- relevant in India, they're relevant for mankind. You see, we always think of nonviolence as an absence of conflict or an absence of strife but non-violence is not to violate anything and what we are experiencing today in our, uh, on our earth is is the backlash of our violation of nature
0: You also though in the movie you do this little collage of uh, of various comments about Gandhi that show that there is no one set point of view that somebody calls him an ass as somebody else that, you know, I mean, you know, it says, hey, wasn't one person that gained us independence. It sounds like you encountered the full breadth of opinion as one does on most issues in most places. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there is a whole breadth of views on, on Gandhi and, and what he did for the nation. Some people believe that he tore the country in half. You know, he let partition happen. Other people believe that he's the founding father of India. I met one, uh, one policeman, actually, who worshipped Gandhi. Uh, I went to one of Gandhi's ashrams in Ahmedabad, and the policeman outside that was guarding the, the ashram would go in regularly and pray to a picture of Gandhi. Tushar Gandhi actually says, his, his great-grandson says, that you know we, sh- we shouldn't be worshipping, worshipping him because we then lose that philosophy, you know, he becomes an idol. We
0: cannot, even if the entire interview was dedicated to the politics of India, we couldn't cover it all. And I'm almost tempted not to do it because we will gloss over it. But you did mention partition. I feel that the weight of the British just saying, all right, we're getting out of India and we're going to carve up the country as Pakistan on the, the, the east and west, India in the middle, Muslims over there, Hindus in India. Now you, got, you lot go off and sort it out for yourselves. Now, how many millions of people died in the in in, in the ensuing I mean it was effectively a, a form of mutual genocide civil war?
1: It was about 14 and a half million people were displaced, so had to move from one area of India to another, and about two and a half million uh, were killed as a result of the violence that surrounded the the tensions and and the events of of migration.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's a staggering, staggering, staggering number. And Uh, like you said in the movie, that the freedom fighters made, one of them made it clear to you he wasn't fighting the British people, he was fighting the British rulers. He didn't have a problem with the people. A lot of those were probably conscripts to begin with. He was was fighting the British rulers. At this point in our interview, I went on a bit of a soliloquy about Calcutta, which the British built from the swamp up as their chosen capital of India. It's a city I fell in love with during my own time in India, but it was on the opposite side of the country from Ollie's journey. So I took the time to tell him about the Victoria Memorial there, which the British decided to build in honour of Queen Victoria after she died in 1901. However, by the time it was completed 20 years later, the British had long moved the nation's capital to Delhi unilaterally, i.e. without consultation, adding injury to Indian insult at the continued British rule. The Victoria Memorial was initially then perhaps the world's largest white elephant, an unwanted spectacle of excess built at the expense of an oppressed nation. This truly stunning architectural building has been wisely converted into a museum of Calcutta, which means, by extension, a museum of British rule in India. The museum includes antiques as well as paintings, and a photographic exhibition that details the Great Famine in Calcutta's state of Bengal during the Second World War, which many people there blame on British disregard for the local population. An estimated two-plus million people died in Bengal, about one in 30, many, of course, in Calcutta itself. And underneath one of the very last images in this exhibition stands this simple single-sentence summary. Calcutta benefited from British rule more than other Indian cities and also paid a greater price. And I think that's the weight that we carry, that there are things that that the Indians seem to appreciate about the British and there are an awful lot of things for which we have to be ashamed.
1: Absolutely. I think that sums it up really nicely, actually. Um, and, And that's very much the feeling, the sense that I got is, you know, they're very appreciative of the things we left behind. Language being the biggest because it's now massively, you know, it's put them on a global platform to to be able to work globally. Uh, But also, you know, things like the road network, rail network and so on that are vital to to the way India operates. But then, of course, as you say, there's there's a huge amount of uh, issues that we uh, sort of left behind or uh, ultimately have sort of emerged since the British left.
0: Yeah, and massacres along the way as well. Um, what did you learn about yourself on this journey?
1: Well, uh, th- I mean, I think I, I gained a lot from it. I think one of the, the biggest things I, I realized was that the, the body is more capable than you necessarily think it probably is. You can push yourself much harder. I think one of the challenges that I wasn't prepared for was the mental side of it. You know, physically, I actually knew before I set off that I could do this journey that the challenge was really going to be the mental side of it and keeping myself motivated moving forwards you know with the highs and the lows that we've talked about and and I learned that my mental resilience is 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 very strong and I was able to kind of overcome a lot of those situations I guess (laughs) stubbornness is another one um you know I think you have to be you have to have an element of stubbornness in you in order to, to have that kind of resilience, to be able to keep going and moving forwards. Um, and I, I, I learned that I was very good in my own company. You know, I was quite happy to be on my own, walking day in, day out, um, and happy with the conversations that I was having along the way. Is
0: there a single sentence you can say about what you learned um, what you learned about India on this journey? Or, did, or was that summed up in the quote I gave earlier on?
1: I think it's, yeah, it's very much summed up in the quote. Um, you know, it is an incredibly uh, intense country. Uh, as I said earlier, it's an assault on all of your senses all of the time. But you really do get into it and, and you need to work with it um, and laugh about things. You know, humour is a, is a great way of overcoming challenges. And if you don't, it's just going to ultimately get you more stressed and and put you in a a much more difficult situation. So, yeah.
0: And again, you show that humor. Indian people are uh, exceptionally happy. And uh, that's not meant to sound sort of patronizing, (laughs) remotely patronizing. (laughs) I mean, I've just, I found there was an exuberance to the people there. Um, It was uh, in 2016, uh, it was a country that was on the up. um, Very, very much on the up, thriving middle class. And you, you, you you know, I saw a lot of laughter, a lot of, and um, so I, again, you show that. Uh, Would you go back to India, do something similar?
1: I would do. Yes. I think it's a, you know, it's, it's, it is an incredible country. Um, you know, I covered North to South. I got to experience all those different uh, climates, um, environments, uh, the, the food, uh, the food was fascinating. It changed as the climate changed and the crops around me that I was walking through changed. Um, and I would love to try and experience whether it's East to West or uh, along the uh, East coast perhaps.
0: Indeed, for all the distance Ollie walked, he did really only go down the western half of the country. There's even more coastline to be had on the eastern side. There are massive areas in the middle. There are the Sundarbans on the border of Bangladesh. Kolkata as mentioned. The former Buddhist nation of Sikkim, as we touched on in the last episode. And then there's the vast state of Assam, connected to the rest of India only by a thin sliver of land, which wildlife photographer Carla Rhodes visited to photograph the rare greater adjutant bird, as she discussed back in episode 6. In fact, it's indicative of the size and scope of India that though my family too went down the western side of the country, when I traced Ollie's journey against mine, the only place we intersected was the inland city of Mysore, or Misuru. From there, our paths diverged again. We both continued towards the southern tip of India, but it was Olly, went the entire distance. Yeah, you know, We ended up at Trivandrum, but that's not the very, very, very southern tip. It's, um, can you pronounce it for us where you end your journey?
1: Uh, it's Kenyukumari.
0: Yeah, that's the very southern tip where, where yeah. uh, Gan- there's a temple to Gandhi and his ashes are scattered there, correct?
1: Exactly, yeah. Um, and on the 2nd of October, which is his birthday, so uh, it's only just gone past, but um, there's a hole in the roof where the sun shines directly down to the point where his ashes stood before they were then scattered into the ocean, oh, um, man, that's... which is, yeah, it's a really nice touch of, of the temple design.
0: One thing that really struck me watching this movie in the last few weeks is that India is a very, very, very tactile country. People don't just live on top of each other or alongside each other. They really live with each other. They touch each other. And if you go there, and I really, really hope you will, if you haven't done already, once this pandemic is hopefully behind us, the people of India will touch you too. And of course, I mean that figuratively, but I do actually mean it literally as well. Your movie is a pre-COVID movie, um, but it also brings up the question of what's next and how long do you think you have to wait for it?
1: In terms of sort of bigger trips, international trips, I've got an idea for Southern Africa uh, which is again based around the the theme of independence and uh, separation from from Britain, and ultimately, I haven't had enough time or the headspace to to really do the research. But I think it's a really the historical side of it is a really interesting aspect. And actually, I guess that's that's one other thing that I learned about myself is I gave up history at school when I was fourteen. At that the earliest opportunity, I took the geography route, and and that's the way the sort of the curriculum here in the UK works is you choose one or the other, but obviously later in life, I've developed this interest in history that wasn't anything that I was covering uh, at school. You know, we were covering first world war, second world war. And I think, you know, I've suddenly found this new interest and passion. And I think, you know, when, when travel does resume, I'll be able to, to go and pursue that in a bit more detail.
0: Would you make a movie next time as well? Would you do that again?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the the movie was uh, really uh, – I mean, that was something I learnt. Um, it was a real passion. And ultimately, I think making a movie does change the, the adventure itself. You need to make sure you're committing to that, and um, it does ultimately take over from the adventure you have. As soon as you shove a camera in someone's face, they may shy away. They, you know – you change that interaction. But yeah, definitely I think I would, uh, I would make another movie. Um, the other thing I will say is, is I can offer a, a discount for your, uh, for your listeners if you'd like.
0: That'll be fantastic, because while people are stuck at home, um, it's great to have some light entertainment, but people should watch this movie and and get a combination of history and geography, and we can all suffer vicariously through you and uh, and your (laughs) blisters. Absolutely. Watching with our feet up on the sofa. Um, All right, Ollie, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure, and uh, I'm sure we will talk again some point soon.
1: Well, better get going.
0: You can read more about Ollie's expeditions, including the Amazon River Run, which we barely touched on here, at olliehuntersmart.com. Though I should warn you, he spells Ollie with just the one L, -L O-L-I-E, huntersmart.com. That's the same handle he uses on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, and I'll put all of these in the show notes. And though it's easy enough to find, I'll also put a direct link there for the Road to Independence on Vimeo. Follow that link, or just go on Vimeo and search for the movie, enter the promo code OSB50, and you'll get a 50% discount. If you want to hear more about Ollie's filmmaking process, check out his appearance on episode 204 of the Pursuit Zone adventure travel podcast, which is where I first came across his story. And if you'd like to hear him talk about getting shot at while on the Amazon River, check out episode 7 of Call to Adventure podcast, I also want to give a major shout-out to episode 8 of the Unraveling Travelling podcast, in which a couple who live out of their camper van discuss nomad life in a both hilarious and meaningful manner. Certainly, if you were intrigued by Ollie's statement about avoiding the obvious life and career paths, you'll really appreciate Londoners Ben and Lee's deeper dive into the topic. They also take not so much empire as the very notion of nationalism fully to task, There are many podcasts where you can hear Scott and Jenny Durek talk about their time on the Appalachian Trail. One that I can recommend is episode 12 of Plant Strong. But if you want to hear what the AT is like for the everyday young adult hiker, check out what is currently the brand new episode of Without Compromise, presented by Athletic Brewing, where host Mason Bradley talks to Alex Dyson at the halfway point in his through hike. Athletic makes highly drinkable craft non-beer, So it makes sense that Alex is one of the many who gave up drinking and promptly sought out a new addiction, in his case settling on hiking. I actually love Athletics near beers, especially the Rum Wild IPA and the Upside Dawn Golden Ale, and they've become my weekday and race week go-to dinner drinks. That said, I do still down the occasional alcoholic beer, and on episode 70 of the Pain Cave podcast, I take a star turn as the interviewee and play the show's game of naming my Desert Island book, album, food, and beer. Hint the beer is not Bud. This episode of One Step Beyond was written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher, partially at the studios of Radio Kingston. Incidental music in this episode is uh, The Road to Independence by Austin Vincent Friends, used by permission. The closing music, which you can hear now, is revealed in this nature by Noel Fletcher. One Step Beyond is by Madness, of course, used with their permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. You can subscribe to a newsletter or just reach out via email one beyond at ijamming.net And of course, you can find us on social media. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher and we should come up on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Again, all of this is in the show notes. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man. And if your platform allows for a rating or review, Yeah, go for it. And with that, until next time, stay healthy, get outside, and remember, democracy is worth fighting for.